0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. EM Cases Summit tickets just went on sale at emcasesummit.com Space is limited for the virtual simulation sessions and for the morning symposiums on rural EM, global EM, and wellness. So to help ensure that we continue to provide the EM cases podcast for free, as well as the entire learning system, the videos, the email blasts, etc., consider please getting a ticket for the summit. It has full CME accreditation in both the U.S. and Canada, so you can catch up on any CME obligation you might have or bank tons of CME credits for the future. Again, visit EMCasesSummit.com for all the details. On part one of our two-part podcast on when x-rays lie, we went in detail into Dr. CL's scared of mnemonic for the differential diagnosis of MSK injuries. In this part two, we're going to first dive into how to order x-rays and how to interpret x-rays properly. And then there's going to be a whole bunch of other good pearls in there after we do that. Now, we're going to be talking about how to improve our x-ray interpretation skills, but before we get into how we read x-rays, I'd like to talk about how to order them properly. So first, Dr. Seal, I want to talk about the rules that we have for when to order x-rays. There's the very famous Ottawa ankle rules. From the same group, they put out the Ottawa foot rules and the Ottawa knee rules. What are some of the limitations of the Ottawa ankle, foot, and knee rules?
1: I think it's great to have this discussion because it does, I think we just become automatons and we just, you know, put them through this process, someone injures their ankle or foot. We just put them through the rule and see, and you don't really understand the rule as well as we should. Uh, and certainly I didn't use it as well as I could have. We think of the rule more of as who needs an x-ray. And then what we do is we don't even examine them properly. So one of the limits is the auto ankle rules have nothing to do with how you examine an ankle. The auto-ankle rules, the auto-foot rules are basically a clinical decision rule to say, does an x-ray help you in making a diagnosis? So you need a history, you need a physical, and then you can apply the rule. And what I would say is if you think you don't need an x-ray, bring the rule in. And if the rule says you don't need an x-ray, then good. You can have a discussion with the patient and save the system an ankle x-ray, not a problem. A foot rule, just be careful. The Ottawa foot rules are not for anybody with a foot injury and who needs an x-ray. They're for somebody who injures their ankle, has pain in their foot, and needs a foot x-ray on top of their ankle x-ray. By example, I had a patient, uh, I saw with a resident, and this patient had a 45-pound plate working out in a gym. It fell on their third and fourth metatarsal necks. They were not sore over the navicular. They were not sore over the base of the fifth metatarsal. They could take four steps on their heel, no problem. By the auto ankle rules, they don't need a foot x-ray, but that's not what the rules are about. So it's not which patient with a foot injury needs a foot x-ray. The auto ankle rules are which patients with an ankle injury need a foot series as well. So that's again another important thing where the resident's like, no, by rules, they don't need an x ray. I'm like, by common sense rules, they absolutely do need an x ray. (laughs) They dropped a 45 pound plate on their foot and it hurts and it's swollen. So that's another kind of thing where we get attached to this test, but we don't understand it well enough. And the final thing I would say is if you're worried enough about a patient that you're going to send them to a fracture clinic, take an x ray. Because if you don't want to do a knee x-ray because they don't have a fracture, that's great. But when they come back to, uh, they're 56 years old and they have a, they have some knee pain, they go see the orthopedic surgeon. If there's a fair degree of arthritis in that knee, the conversation the surgeon has with the patient is different. So it may not be a fracture or not. It may not affect what we do. But that x-ray has different meaning to a surgeon. So if you're sending them to a surgeon for an opinion and follow-up, I would say take an x-ray. So Dr. Chatter. You touched on this briefly in
0: part one of the podcast, but I want to dig a bit more into what the ED doc should write on the x-ray requisition or request so that the radiologist can zero in on the area of concern. And this brings in the concept of central ray, which I won't give it away. I'll let you explain it. So first, I guess the first question is, what would you hope that emergency physicians would write on an x-ray requisition rather than just rule out fracture to help radiologists interpret the x-rays better so that we can decrease your miss rate and do better for the patient? And then what is the concept of central ray?
2: When it comes to the requisition, honestly, there are two big things that would really, really help us. And they're simple things. So one, has there been trauma or not? And where does the patient hurt? For me, if I have those two things, It simplifies my job tremendously, and it allows me to add that much more value. Now, other big picture things that could be included are, is there a fever or not, if you're thinking about infection, and then really, is it acute or chronic? But putting those two aside, has there been trauma, and where does it hurt? That helps tremendously. So that's my kind of basic summary of what I think is helpful on a requisition so that we can all do the best that we can for our patients. And then in terms of central ray, so this concept is it's an interesting one. So the central ray is essentially the theoretical center of the x-ray beam. So an x-ray beam is composed of photons that come from the tube and hit the film or detector. And so the central ray is the central portion of that beam. So ideally, you want the center of that beam to be going of the area of interest. So if we know, you know, where the the main site of symptoms are, where the patient is hurting the most, we want to ensure that The the center of that x-ray beam is definitely going through that area. And that's why the history is important, indicating where the patient is most symptomatic. And I can just share with you a few cases where this concept of of central ray can help. So even outside of MSK, for example, if somebody is looking for free air in the abdomen, the reason a chest x-ray is more sensitive than an abdominal x-ray is the diaphragms, when you take a chest x-ray, they're more in the path of the central ray. So the center of the x-ray beam is going to be closer to the diaphragm than when you take an abdominal x-ray where the diaphragms are more to the top of the image. That's why a chest x-ray is better at looking for free air under the hemi diaphragm than an abdominal x-ray. And then similar things when we're imaging the long bones, for example, the femur, and we're trying to figure out what's happening at the knee joint because the knee joints often at the edge of view, I may not be able to say with confidence, is there arthritis? This is more just kind of a, an ancillary thing. And then similarly, when we're taking a humeral x-ray, I've seen some people look at a humeral x-ray and say, oh, well, the distance between the acromion and humerus, and this happens with radiologists too, is it looks like it's nothing. So maybe this patient has a rotator cuff tear. You can't go that far because that part of the anatomy is at the edge of the field of view. So you're not really able to go into detail about that. And then the one area that gets really tricky is when we take a lumbar spine x-ray, patient comes in with back pain and you're trying to figure out, well, what's going on with those lower thoracic vertebrae bodies? Is there really a compression fracture? Because they're at the edge of the field of view, they're not in the path of the central ray, it can be misleading. So if we need to look at those areas in more detail, we can easily bring them back and in fact do a lateral view that's more centered on the lower part of the thoracic spine. So hopefully that helps to tease out the concept of central ray and why it's important to know.
1: And to, to add to that, I'll tell you, there's little small things that I think make a difference. Like if somebody has uh, injured their toe, Don't do a foot x-ray, do a toe x-ray, because when you do a foot x-ray, as Dr. Chad is saying, the beam is centered on the midfoot. But if you're worried about the toe, you want the beam centered at the toe. Another example that I'd see sort of on shift is someone's fallen, they've injured their elbow and their wrist, and somebody orders a forearm x-ray because it gives them that two-for-one special. (laughs) <laughs> right? Because they want to minimize, ray, but they're actually lousy views of the wrist and lousy views of the elbows because they're out in the corner exactly as Dr. Chad is saying. So I think that's why it's important to like do an elbow x-ray and do a wrist x-ray in that case. If they're sore mid forearm, by all means do a forearm x-ray. So this whole concept of the central ray, you want that beam to be very close to where they're injured, where the pain is. And that's really kind of a thing. Don't do a hand x-ray if they've only injured one finger Order a finger x-ray.
0: Yeah, I love this concept, which I've never heard before in emergency medicine, actually. You know, in 20 years of practice, I've never actually heard the concept of the central ray and never even thought about it. So that's like revolutionary in my thinking of x-rays. I want to dig deeper into what views to ask for. So, Dr. Ciel, you just touched on, you know, if you injure your finger, order a finger x-ray, don't order a hand x-ray. Sometimes you want to do a wrist and a forearm. Sometimes you want to do a wrist and an elbow. Sometimes you're doing an ankle and a tib fib. Sometimes you're doing ankle and knee. How should we sort out what best combination of films to order in a patient that, you know, may have referred pain? They may have multiple injuries. Considering that we now understand this concept of the central ray, what's the best way to order combination films? Dr. Shada?
2: Yeah, this is a really, really good question. And and I think this is where our clinical experience and, and also understanding the the patterns of injury, I, in my opinion, does does help. So if we look at the two most common ring, ring-like ring structures in the extremity, so if we start with the lower leg, you've got the tibia and fibula. And if you, for example, talk about the, the mason nerve pattern of injury, so injury at the ankle, the patient can be in a lot of ankle pain. And then from what I understand, sometimes the proximal fibular fracture can be overlooked. In this case, for sure, you want to focus on where the money is at, and and you want to focus on the ankle. But then, in my mind, the next set should be uh, an X-ray of of the lower leg. You don't need to do a separate set where you're looking at the knee, uh, because typically the the femur has has never been involved in in the cases that I've seen. So, the other ring structure that we often struggle with is radius and ulna. So, if we just look at the common patterns that happen there, so uh, Dr. Sal already talked about the Monteggia fracture pattern. So an ulnar shaft fracture, and then a radial head subluxation or dislocation. The main area of focus is is the forearm. So I'd want two views of the forearm. If there's any uncertainty as to what's happening elsewhere, then the next thing I'd want to order or see is is two or three views of, of the elbow. With that type, um, the Montesia, maybe not as critical to image the wrist, but although some people would say, I want wrist and elbow for me, the forearm and elbow are imperative there. And then the Galeazi fracture pattern, I would say you have a radial fracture, then you really need to have dedicated views of the wrist if there's any uncertainty at all. But then if you have something that's really high impact, so the classic SX lopresti lesion, or fracture, sorry, where you have an injury of the proximal radius, the radial head and neck, and then you can have a force going down that interosseous membrane all the way to the wrist, that's a case where you, in fact, may need all three, elbow, forearm, and wrist. But in many cases, you can get by with... Through an understanding of the fracture patterns and through your clinical experience, you know maybe ordering two out of three. That that's kind of my take, but I'd love to hear Doctor Sal's input here.
1: Yeah, no, I I think points are all exceedingly well taken. They talk about in some emerge books you'll read. You should always X-ray the joint above and below. And to be honest with you, I think that's a terrible recommendation to X-ray always. You should always examine the joint above and below. And if somebody has a long bone fracture, tib-fib, you need to definitely, the x-ray has to involve the knee and the ankle. But if specifically they're focally tender at the knee and the ankle, then again, to go back to that central ray, you need a beam centered on that injury. You need a knee film or an ankle film, depending on. So any mid-shaft injury, you need to see the joint above and below on the x-ray for sure, because those patterns can reach the end of the bone. But any fracture that's around a joint, you don't need to uh, x-ray the joint above and below, but you certainly need to examine the joint above and below.
0: All right. And Dr. Chata, you had mentioned two views versus three views, and this confuses me all the time. Usually, I just ask for three views all the time because I don't really understand when you need two or three views. But I would like to be a bit more sophisticated to uh, maybe just spare some radiation for those people who only really need two views and those people who need three views. Are there any general rules that we should go by for who needs two views and who needs three views?
2: This is a really practical question. So I'll try my best to summarize it. So When I say two views, I'm talking about two planes. So I'm talking about a frontal and a lateral. So if we're looking at trauma to the long bones, so if you see a humeral fracture in an elderly patient, you know, typically there's going to be two views there, a frontal and and a lateral, And, and that gives you the information you need. So most long bones, humerus, femur, there are two planes of imaging, so two views, clavicle as well then when you look at most joints though uh, most joints end up being three views the only joint that's typically not three views unless you're looking for something really specific is the hip joint and that's just because it's a deeper ball and socket joint so it's typically just a frontal and and a lateral but then all other joints typically because they involve a rounded structure aligning up with something else you typically need a third view so with the hand and the wrist it's a frontal oblique lateral and with the foot it's the same thing and we know our ankle three views there so that's kind of how i approach it one one area where not at our site but at other sites where i see multiple views being done and sometimes i question it and this is just based on my clinical experiences is the lumbar spine sometimes i'll see at some sites lumbar spines will be a frontal a lateral and then two sets of oblique views because they're trying to look at the facet joints or a pars defect in my experience i feel like that's maybe a little bit overrated that's why we don't do it at our site i think you can glean essentially all the information you need from a good frontal and lateral the only time where we may add one more image to the l spine is again if the central ray is way off the lumbosacral junction and we need to see it in a bit more detail we'll often do a cone down view focusing on that lumbosacral junction that's my kind of general overview for two versus three views. And then the knee, sometimes in addition to the frontal lateral and sunrise view, we'll add one or two oblique views, especially if we're trying to characterize a tibial plateau fracture or look at the femoral condyle. Remember, they are curved surfaces and you need a bit more detail. So that that's my, my summary. Got it.
0: And Dr. CL, there's a whole bunch of extra x-ray views that we haven't even talked about yet. There's weight-bearing views. There's the clenched fist view. There's the skyline view of the patella. Could you just run through for us the more important extra views that we should consider in the emergency department?
1: Sure. The uh, The most common extra view we'll order orthopedically is a scaphoid view. So if there's clinical concern for a scaphoid fracture, that's certainly indicated. And ordering that scaphoid view increases the yield, the likelihood that uh, your plane films will show a fracture. In the wrist, there are two other views that are less commonly ordered. And I certainly rarely ordered these before I started working in a fracture clinic. And they are, there's something called the clenched fist view, and it's something called the power grip view. But essentially, someone not just has to close their hand, they act- actively have to clench. And this is one of the ways of looking if there's some subtle widening of the lunate space. So Terry Thomas sign is for a complete lunate tear, But you can have partial tears, you can even technically have stretches of them, and those injuries can take months sometimes to heal. Even if they're non-operative, those patients need to be protected. So if they're tender in the scaphalunate space, which is the proximal carpals just distal to the radius, there's a little bump called Lister's tubercle just beyond that. If that's where the patient's tender, that would be an indication for a clenched fist view or a power grip view. The other extra wrist view, much less commonly ordered, is called a carpal tunnel view or the hook of the hamate view. Primarily, it's for the hook of the hamate, which is usually in a club sport or a racket sport. And where they have tenderness is on the palmar side of their hand. On the ulnar side, there's a little bump called the pisiform. It's a P-shaped bone, a little beyond that, a little distal and a little more to the thumb. Uh, That's where the the hook of hamate fracture would be tender. But that's also, uh, just like three weeks ago, four weeks ago in fracture Clinic, I had a lady who fell very tender over the base of her thinner remnants, and that's the trapezium, and the only view we could see that on, she actually had an undisplaced trapezium fracture, uncommon as it may be. It was picked up on a carpal tunnel view. Anyways, uh, those are a couple of extra wrist views that you can think about. The skyline or sunrise view is a patellar view, uh, often done for patellar fractures. Patients who have patellar subluxations to see where it sits You'll sometimes see osteochondral lesions if they have a big swollen knee after a patellar dislocation. I think that perhaps they have an osteochondral lesion, and that extra view is quite helpful. You can order calcaneal views as extra views, sometimes helpful. I will tell you, that the axillary view that was mentioned earlier, super valuable. If you ever think, boy, is that person got a posterior shoulder, you can do an axillary or a modified axillary view. There are ways of doing it. Not done routinely because it can be a little uncomfortable, but a modified axillary view should be done. And for posterior shoulders that you suspect, also proximal humerus fractures to make sure the head's in place because sometimes they have a fractured dislocation of the proximal humerus and a modified axillary may help put that up. We're not big fans in the emergency department, to be honest with you, of weight-bearing fuse. Because if patients are that sore, you may get a label that the x-ray tech puts on that says weight-bearing, but the patient kind of just feather-touched their foot or didn't really put full weight on it. So you need to test them in the emergency department that they can fully lift their other leg off the ground and take an x-ray before you send them for a weight-bearing film. Otherwise, it's misleading. So I'd be a little hesitant. Most patients that were worried about with a List Frank injury probably won't be able to do a weight-bearing view and Emerge, and they could just be immobilized on history and physical.
0: Fantastic examples. Excellent. And I got to admit that that clenched fist view, I have not ordered enough, I don't think. I, I think, you know, if they're tender in the right place, I'll immobilize them and send them for follow-up. But that's nice to know that the clenched fist view can really increase your yield.
1: And one other thing I'll just suggest, and it kind of alludes back to at an earlier case of, you know, wasn't sure if the ankle was wide or not. Don't hesitate to do a bilateral clench fist. I do a clench fist at the other side to see what normal's like. Because again, some females have ligament laxity. They may normally open. Some kids, you know, they stand on their ankle. It might normally open. How do you know if it's pathology or not? A list, Frank, is that wide or not? Well, just order a plain film of the other side and see what normal's like for that patient. Because there is a variety of normal. If you've never seen an axillary review before, okay, order an axillary review of the one side and then do the normal side. So you at least see what normal looks like. And then once you get comfortable with it, you don't have to do the opposite side. Excellent point.
0: All right. Any other pearls or tips or anything about how we can interpret x-rays better? So let's start with you, Dr. Chada. How do you think we could be better at interpreting x-rays besides asking you if we can sit in with you while you're interpreting x-rays, which you know, I might I, do, I always, by the way?
2: <laughs> no, no, no. I, I always say, and and we're lucky to be working in a hospital where we have you know a, a very good relationship with, with one another and open communication. And that is so, so important. So I encourage everybody, you know, if you're on a shift with me or anybody else, like go have a conversation because, you know, it's through conversations, that's when you learn something. And it is so helpful to me to get feedback on a case, you know, whether whether something was missed or where the patient was tender, because it helps both parties. It helps me with my interpretation. And then maybe the ordering a physician, maybe they'll pick up a little pearl about image interpretation there, there as well. So that's the first thing and I think that's in fact the most important thing and so I'll, I'll start off by that. The second thing in terms of interpreting images you always want to have an approach and you always want to essentially look at each set of images in the same way. So for me for example I'll take you through a, a basic approach to knee x-ray in the trauma setting. I generally like to go to my lateral view first. I like to see whether there is a joint effusion or a lipohemarthrosis. If I see that meniscus level, that fluid fluid or that fat fluid level, lipohemarthrosis, I know there's a fracture there and I just have to go looking in the right places, whether it's patellar or tibial plateau. Always I look at the lateral view first and then I interrogate the other views, then looking at the the joint spaces. But always, always, always when you're looking at any set of MSK x-rays, I would start with the soft tissues first because that is really going to point you to the side of injury. It's just like when we're looking at CT heads. If there's trauma, if I see a scalp hematoma anywhere, I'm looking for a coup or a contract coup injury pattern. And then when it comes to MSK x-rays, I really want to zone in on that side of soft tissue swelling, as subtle as it may be, and, and really try to, to interrogate. So that's my basic approach to always look at it in the exact same way, always look at the pictures in the same sequence, because then you fall into a habit. And then you make sure that you're, you're looking at, at all the structures. That's my job anyways. I have to look for the incidentals, whereas I know you have a little bit more information as to where the, the patient hurts. But those are some pearls that I can hopefully relay to listeners.
0: Excellent. You had mentioned looking at the lateral view first. And I know, Dr. Ciel, we've talked about this separately, about the lateral view and how it's sort of the neglected view. Could you elaborate on that for us a bit? So why we should be looking at the lateral view first?
1: So I'll tell you from an orthopedic point of view, the lateral view is the main view. It's the money view, if you want to call it that. The minimum is two views at 90 degrees, right? Uh, One view is one view too few. One view is never enough. Whatever saying you want to use. But what do we do? The most common x-ray orders a chest x-ray. And then how is that? Like a PA is the most important one. The lateral's there, but really the PA is the most important. So as emergency doctors, we're focused on the the PA primarily. When we look at people, we look at them face-to-face. We don't usually look at their side. So we're used to the PA profile, the AP looking front back. That's kind of feels normal, but orthopedically, you know, a lateral view of the, of the foot to see a little subtle subluxation or dislocation to see soft tissue swelling, a lateral view of the shoulder to see if it's dislocated or not. There's no question. All the views are of value, but the most valuable view is the lateral view. And that's why, because we don't go to it first, we should go to it first Go to it first, go look at it, make sure it's a good view. As was mentioned earlier, you have a good lateral film on a good ankle. The fibula should be the back half of the tibia, right? What's a good lateral of the elbow? If you can't see down that sort of intercondylar pipe properly, if it's rotated, you can't make good comments on it. If you have a a wrist injury and the wrist is rotated, you may not be able to sort of understand indications for reduction properly. If a shoulder has a poor lateral view, you may miss a subtle posterior subluxation Or what I've seen, uh, three separate cases where doctors pulled on a shoulder thinking it was dislocated, but it wasn't out in three separate cases because it was a bad transcapular view. It made it look like an anterior dislocation, but it wasn't. It was just rotated. So again, go to the lateral film, understand what's normal, and then go look at the other views for sure because they'll be helpful. But the best thing I will tell you, if you want to get better at looking at films, get better at examining patients. If you see the patient before you see the film, you'll be way better at it. And this is, again, ways that we can help our consultants, our radiology consultants, tell them where it hurts. If we try to look at the x-ray first, we're trying to compete with the radiologists. We'll never be as good as the radiologists. But if we do a history and a physical, we know where it hurts. Then when you look at the film, then you'll actually be better at it. And if we help our radiologists, at the end of the day, we're all saying, this is what helps patients get looked after better. I love
0: that concept that, you know, evolutionarily wise, we are wired to look AP rather than lateral. And so we so naturally just want to look at that AP. That's another sort of little forcing strategy that when you're interpreting x-rays, look at the lateral first. Because evolutionarily, we just tend to ignore laterals where they can be the most revealing for MSK injuries. Yeah.
1: And if in the big picture, I can just add a couple of things. As we're sitting here talking about this little closing segment, whatever, Anton, you mentioned that, you know, you want to go back and sit with Yatin and I thought the same thing. I wrote a little note to myself as we're going through this, I should go and just sit with him to learn from him, to see how he approaches things, because I'll learn from it. And then Yatin mentioned about, you know, it's so good when somebody comes down and visits. Most of the time, if I'm on shift, I have a resident, we will walk down to talk to the radiologist because that's an incredibly valuable experience. Not only do you get to know them, see who they are, they're not just a name on up thing, you get to meet them, which is great. And then when you're there, the radiologist may show you another case that they're reading that's really interesting. And you go, oh, wow, that's fascinating. Or they show your case and they show you how to interpret it and you get better at it. So that time, that sort of connection of building bridges is totally phenomenal from a emerge to whichever colleague that we're dealing with. So all of these pearls, we're constantly students in medicine. We never stop being a student. We never stop learning. No matter how much gray hair we have or whatever, that's another principle of all of this. And it's amazing. Like, you know, I just, I just look for all these opportunities. I go to the operating room once a week. I'm a PGY 34, or whatever I am now, <laughs> just, just to keep learning from the surgeons. So part of the glory of medicine is to constantly learn.
0: Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. So far in this podcast, we've talked about how to order x-rays properly and how to interpret them properly and some interesting philosophies about learning in medicine. I want to move on to other imaging modalities. And we touched on some of these a little bit in part one. But the longer I practice, the more I see these other modalities like CT and ultrasound being done from the emergency department. When I started emergency medicine, I don't think in the first five years, I don't think I ever ordered a CT for you know a long bone injury at all. And now I just see it being done a lot more. Dr. Chatta, let's start with this question. What are the indications for a CT scan that needs to be done in the emergency department and can't wait for an outpatient appointment with an orthopedic surgeon?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I think CT really needs to be done when a diagnosis needs to be made because treatment is going to be imminent. And imminent is, that's, that's a broad spectrum. It could be the same night. It could be in a couple days within a week, just sooner rather than later. The sooner rather than later, sometimes they'll get followed up in fracture clinic and they'll order a, a CT from fracture clinic, which is reasonable to but it's when we really need to tease out a diagnosis because you know that diagnosis could impact the treatment and that treatment could happen soon. So when it comes to specific fractures, I think one common thing happening is is lisfranc fracture dislocations. You know, those usually need to be dealt with sooner rather than later. We do see them sometimes for the hindfoot calcaneus fractures. It's not because that needs to be operated on right away. It's typically going to happen sooner. It's in that sooner category, but calcaneal anatomy is is pretty complex. Only other one in the lower extremity that I would probably add is a tibial plateau fracture that is a little bit more complicated and you need to to characterize that. Those would be the three. And then, of course, the hip fracture. Uh, What we used to do in my residency program is we used to do a single view MRI to diagnose a radiographically occult hip fracture. Very busy hospital. We don't always have the time to do that, so we tend to stick to CT. CT can be a little bit trickier in older patients who have osteopenia, osteoporosis, but usually it's pretty good at picking up the hip fracture with confidence. So those would be the areas in the lower extremity where I think it's it's reasonable to uh, order a CT. And for the calcaneus, if it doesn't happen, then it happens from fracture clinic. Upper extremity, usually not too much that needs to be diagnosed imminently, unless the clinical picture is really unclear. But one thing I would bring up is the sternoclavicular malalignment. When you do sternal x-rays, you have a lateral sternal x-ray, then you have two oblique images that look at the manubrium and the sternoclavicular joints. That can be really, really tricky, you know, even for people who, who have, have some experience. So the dislocations may be quite apparent clinically, but the subluxations may not always be apparent. And I think that's something that needs to be teased out pretty soon because, because of the mediastinum. So that would be kind of my summary for when CT needs to be done fairly soon.
0: Excellent. I love that list. So tibial plateau, hip. Frank and calcaneus for the lower extremity and cernoclavicular for the upper extremity. It just reminds me that I think Dr. Ciel, in the very, very first Emergency Medicine Cases podcast, episode number one, you were my guest, which thank you again for trusting me because some dude just comes up to me that I don't know and asked me to be on this podcast which back then was like what's a podcast <laughs> and you kindly <laughs> obliged you kindly obliged to uh to participate mm-hmm. and i think we actually talked about sternoclavicular dislocation in that one i don't know if it actually made it onto the podcast but i'm just remembering now back in 2009 or whenever it was that we recorded that anyhow i digress dr sial any comments about when to order ct scans in the emergency department I have to be honest that I find myself wondering why CT scans are being ordered so much for MSK injuries from our emergency department. I feel like I need to be convinced that there's good reason to do this. And Dr. Chata just outlined a few of the injuries that we should consider it in. Any comments about when to order CTs?
1: For sure, if you're worried about a hip fracture and the x-ray is negative, like, actually look at the hip really carefully. Uh, and before you order a CT, maybe talk to a radiologist, maybe even talk to an orthopedic surgeon to see if they see something, because sometimes it's actually the abnormalities there and the CT is not necessary. But if it truly is negative and clinically you're concerned, they certainly may need advanced imaging. Tibial plateaus, I would suggest that probably every tibial plateau fracture that uh, you can see on a plane film should get a CT because that will tell the surgeon whether they can weight bear or not. the oper- So that's not for us. It's actually for the surgeon to make a diagnosis about management, whether it's operative or not, weight-bearing or not, and they cannot do that on a plain film. Uh, You certainly can have x-ray negative tibial plateau fractures, like truly radiographically occult, uh, but those are either really worrisome mechanism or really older patient with a really swollen knee. So there are ways to think about that. Calcaneal fractures, I think from an eMERGE perspective, not necessary to CT, but certainly surgeons may do it from a surgical planning point of view. List franks as well, I would just, a little bit of hesitation, because you can have a CT negative operative Frank Someone who took the course actually three, four months ago said he twisted his, his early 50s, twisted his foot. He thought for sure he did a, had a list Frank X-ray showed some swelling negative, CT negative, and then his surgeon, he's in the States, did a stress CT showed it open and it was operative. But the plain CT did not show a fracture. You can have a purely ligamentous, unstable operative at List Frank. So, so again, it's all about history and physical, but if you're worried enough, you know what they need is a backslab and follow-up. I probably wouldn't CT, something that looks normal from a List Frank from an emergent perspective. But I probably have a little more comfort and confidence in managing than my, some might. I just don't want people to get a false sense of security with a normal or a no fracture CT for Liz Frank.
2: The only thing I'll add is for the hip, one thing we are doing now is tomosynthesis. That's something that, in my opinion, it's really only useful if, if you're not really seeing anything and you want to make sure. It's a technique that you can do, where you essentially do a radiographic scan from front to back, and you can look at the bony detail more carefully. But obviously, if somebody has a clear-cut femoral neck fracture or an intertrochoteric fracture, you don't need to be spending time doing techniques like that, but it can be just something in your arsenal, in your problem-solving kit if need be. First of all,
0: tomosynthesis sounds like it's from Star Trek and not a real thing. Yeah, it sounds
2: pretty (laughs) cool. It sounds pretty cool.
0: And secondly, I'm not sure that our audience know what that is. So if you could actually just tell us a couple things. What is it? What is tonosynthesis? And secondly, do you know anything on the literature of that? Because I've been very curious because occasionally I'll order a hip x-ray and then it comes back with this kind of cool x-ray scan that I can scan through. I'm not sure what to make of it. I can't remember when I've seen something on that sort of scan of the x-ray that I haven't seen on the plane x-ray. Do you know anything with regards to the literature on on that? Like how much added benefit is it over the plane x-ray? I don't know about the literature for the hip.
2: When I was at the Radiology Science in North America presentation in Chicago years ago, somebody did a presentation where they started to do tomosynthesis to interrogate the scaphoid and they were finding improved results. You have to be really careful with that, though, because that's a technique. If you do not have the patient imaged perfectly and the wrist is not ulnar deviated, you can actually make things more complicated than they are because the scaphoid, it's all about the view. It's all about the view i think it might be a bit overkill and so for the hip what it is essentially is it's it's a scan so instead of having two static images you're scanning through the hip we do a lot of tomosynthesis in breast we scan through breast tissue to try and differentiate normal tissue from breast cancer similar concept you're scanning through the hip so you're able to work through those overlapping bony structures in my experience it hasn't added that much value there's maybe been one or two cases in the last few years where I said, okay, you know what? I'm glad I had a, the tomosynthesis available as a problem-solving tool. A lot of the time, the fracture is clear-cut. It absolutely doesn't help. I don't know. I'd love to hear uh, Dr. Sal's take on this too and his experience.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't seen one scaphoid that's it's helped me on. And even with a hip, I think I saw one and I showed it to one of our surgeons, Dr. Garbedian. And I'm like, look, I see one, one here where these tomos made a difference. And he's like, yeah, that's the only one I've ever seen too. So when I started working at the hospital in 91, they just got their CT scanner and they used to do something. I never saw them called tomograms. And they were just x-rays that were just like almost like little slices like a little prehistoric CT scan, and that's what they used to do. But I I never actually ordered one, never saw one. And then it kind of like comes full circle again. And then four or five years ago, whenever it was, I saw our hospitals start to order them occasionally. I see them on occult, suspected occult hips, suspected occult scaphoids, where the plain film, the the tech doesn't see anything on the x-ray. They'll routinely order a uh, the tomos, but I don't know the I don't know the literature. I've rarely seen them be clinically useful.
0: Okay. So in summary there In terms of doing other imaging besides plain x-rays, the TOMO scan doesn't seem to be particularly useful. When it comes to CTs, I think we can all agree that hip and tibial plateau are really the ones that we need to concentrate on. Lisfranc and calcaneus we can consider, but like Dr. Sayal was saying near the top of part one— Picking up the phone to the orthopedic surgeon might be a better test than ordering a CT scan in someone who you suspect has a lisfranc or a bad calcaneus fracture. And then lastly was the sternoclavicular joint is much better assessed by a CT scan. I want to move on from CT scans to ultrasounds. Now, we have talked about MSK ultrasounds in the past on EM cases, Dr. Ciel, when we did our shoulder episode, and the lovely Dr. Dale Dancer, who's an orthopedic surgeon who also works at North York, uh, was on that episode, and when I asked him who needs an MSK ultrasound in the emergency department for the shoulder, he very clearly and plainly said, zero. Because in his opinion, ordering an ultrasound of the shoulder from the emergency department, if anything, can just mislead clinicians to either falsely reassure them that everything is fine or actually come up with uh, potential injuries that actually aren't even there. So from a radiologist perspective, Dr. Chadow, what do you think is the role for ultrasound? And I'm not talking about point of care ultrasound, but radiology department ultrasound for MSK injuries.
2: That's a, a great question. So I, I don't disagree with Dale Dancer, actually. So basically, one thing we have to recognize is workflow on a, on a call shift. If somebody's ordering an MSK ultrasound, the person who's ordering the test has the expectation that whoever is going to be doing the test is experienced in doing that test. An ultrasound is all about user experience. I had a case recently where it was reported as biceps long had tendon tear. The patient had been referred for an injection. I put the probe on the patient And if my probe was off by 10 degrees, it made the biceps tendon look hypoechoic and torn. But when you toggle the probe, and this is an artifact called anisotropy, if you toggle the probe, you could see that the tendon was completely intact. There was tenosynovitis. It's all about user experience. So on a busy call shift where there's only two ultrasound technologists who are doing all the scans, there's a very good chance that the person scanning, they may not have that much experience in MSK ultrasound. And MSK, with the, the minutiae of the anatomy, which is just ex- exquisite, you need that experience. So I would say I agree with Dale in that shoulder ultrasound, routine ultrasound, if you're looking for a rotator cuff tear, even biceps long head tear, I don't think it has value when you're ordering it from the eMERGE. You need to know who's going to be performing the test. And it is a general skill set in radiology. Some groups will have an arrangement such that it's their MSK experienced radiologists or fellowship trained radiologists who will be reading most of that. So Another thing to keep in mind, where I think MSK ultrasound is useful for injuries, I mean, if there's a big collection of the soft tissues, abscess infection is different. So collection, and then the other thing is large tendon tear. But again, it has to be done by somebody who has experience. So I'm talking about the extensor mechanism, quadriceps, patellar tendon, and and Achilles tendon. Those would be really the, the only indications from my perspective, where MSK ultrasound has, has some value when you're ordering it from the eMERGE.
0: Okay, so just to challenge the last couple of things you said there, Dr. Chata, so if someone comes in with an Achilles injury, most of them are pretty obvious clinically. You do your Thompson tests and their, their ankle's not moving, and we immobilize them in plantar flexion, and we have them follow up in the orthopedic clinic, and they have a discussion whether surgery would be indicated or not. And doing an ultrasound for those patients, I can't imagine making any difference except maybe again to mislead me. And I think it's Achilles tendon. I send them for an ultrasound and the ultrasound is negative. And then I decide, oh, maybe it's not an Achilles. And then I don't immobilize them properly.
2: I can tell you that kind of a lot of my approach is dictated from my years of training in residency where we would often image large tendon tears on call. And, uh, you know, as somebody who was eager to get as much experience under my belt i would happily do it and you know when done in experienced hands it can be useful information ad but in talking to our orthopedic surgeons now a lot of achilles tendon tears like dr sal was commenting on a lot of them don't go to surgery and they're managed conservatively so it would be a fracture clinic orthopedic follow-up and management with uh, plantar flexion of the foot. So uh, your point is very well taken. I think the extensor mechanism, it can be a little bit more difficult to tease out, but I'd love to hear Dr. Sal's input on this too.
1: I think it really comes down to, again, pretest probability. And if you have a high pretest probability that they've ruptured their Achilles, they don't need any imaging. The surgeon doesn't need it for surgical planning. Diagnostically, we're happy with it. So nothing particularly needs to be done. I think it'd be pretty uncommon. The extensor mechanism, if somebody has a really big leg, Sometimes it's hard to tell. There are little clues on how to examine them properly to look for these things. But pain can be a muscle inhibitor. And if they're just in a lot of pain, you may have decreased function. So sometimes, you know, if it's an equivocal case, an ultrasound may help. But also we've seen cases where, you know, the ultrasound report says, like, it's a partial tear or high-grade partial tear. And we interpret that as a partial. But in fact, functionally, it's a complete tear. And therefore, the treatment is actually surgical. So it sometimes can be like sort of give us a false sense of reassurance, but the majority of cases that I would have diagnosed as somebody with a quads rupture or patellar tendon rupture, they don't need anything besides a plane film. They'll get a plane film and that's all that they would get. And any advanced imaging is not necessary because it won't change management and the surgeon won't need it for surgical planning. So I think there is a concern about eroding our clinical skills, over-relying on ultrasound, over-relying on any test. And if it's not... Uh, the test isn't perfect, then then, as, you know, Dr. Hellman's suggesting, we can certainly get more harm than benefit sometimes from ordering the test. And in times of clinical uncertainty, you can either immobilize and closely follow up, like fairly closely follow up. If you're worried about an extensor or quads, if it gets picked up in a week, that's fine. But if it's two weeks or three weeks and they had a quads rupture or patellar tendon rupture, then patients certainly will get harm. So you need to get, make sure they have timely follow-up, serial assessments. If you're in doubt, certainly, you know, there may be a role for imaging, but, anyways, these are just things. No, that you I, I love
2: it. I, I, I love it, and that, that's your your clinical experience
0: speaking there, right? I, I think that's great. All right. So, suffice to say that it's kind of as clear as mud. <laughs> There's no hundred percent exact answer as to the role of ultrasound in emergency department MSK injuries. However. There may be a role in some small subset of patients where your pretest probability is low or moderate, and you can't get follow-up fast enough with your orthopedic surgeon. It may be helpful in some injuries. Like, I don't want to say that there's no role for ultrasound. There is a small role. It's controversial. So let's leave it at that.
1: Is that fair? So that's very well summarized. One thing I would say about for the knee, though, for like deeper structures, ACL, meniscal, it's not sensitive enough to make any sort of impact on it. So if you're worried about that being the issue, and you have an ACL tear, they have a meniscal tear, like MCL, you can tell clinically, rarely surgical. So for those issues, I, I would say there's no role for ultrasound in that case. So I,
2: I love what Dr. Sal just said. And in my opinion, even elective knee ultrasound, I'll be just be direct when I say this, I think it's one of the more overhyped things. Because often when I'm when I'm reading at the clinic, many knee x rays are accompanied by an ultrasound. And it's just not adding enough value. Um, You can miss meniscal tears. And if somebody has advanced osteoarthritis, you're probably going to have a meniscal tear that doesn't matter. You can't directly evaluate the cruciate ligaments with knee ultrasound. And really, the only the only case where I can see it being useful is you know inexperienced hands I, I will stick by that if someone was going to tell me you have a chance to evaluate this quadriceps tendon by ultrasound or with mr given my experience my training i prefer to evaluate with, a, with ultrasound because i can do dynamic imaging too the beauty of ultrasound and skilled hands is dynamic scanning i do believe strongly that knee ultrasound is one of the most overhyped things and it does not need to be routinely ordered i'll just leave it at that
0: excellent Before we give Dr. Chata and Dr. Seal a chance to give us their last words of wisdom for the podcast, we have a new FOMED offering that will hopefully be up and running at emergencymedicinecases.com by the time this podcast is released. And the free offering is, ready for it, EM Cases Journal Club. Now, this is not a long-winded esoteric dissection of all the nitty-gritty details of EM articles. I'll tell you what it is. In just a few words, one of our EBM gurus, Dr. Rohit Mohindra, expertly distills the key essentials of the most important articles in EM and delivers a well-thought-out take-home point for each one. To get your free access to EM Cases Journal Club, simply go to the EM Cases site and hit the red subscribe button. There, you can choose to get our bi-weekly email blast, the q and of the week, the Just for Nuggets emails, and now to keep you updated on the latest and the greatest EM articles with monthly one-minute reads, EM Cases Journal Club. (laughs) All right, Dr. Chata, if there were two or three things that ED docs could do that would make radiologists perform better so that we can all take better care of our patients, what would those one or two or three things be? Hopefully it's not five or six.
2: (laughs) No, no. You know, guys, I, I love working with you guys. The, the call shifts are busy, but they're fun. We have a great group. A couple of things. Has there been trauma or not? And where does the patient hurt on the requisition? That's so key. If only those two things are there, it makes things so much easier. And then just come by and, and chat, communicate with us. You know, we, we're all in this together. And, and sometimes I know that radiologists, were in our offices working away. It's a busy shift, but you know, at the end of the day, we also want to see ourselves as as consultants who can add value. So I feel like I'm doing more of that when I'm talking to you guys. So that's
0: really, I'll leave it at that. I'm sure there's some listeners thinking out there that there's some radiologists who are not close to as nice as Dr. Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember as a resident, especially at, I dare to say, at uh, academic hospitals where you go to speak to the radiologists and they are not interested in speaking to you. <laughs> So thank you for being uh, so collegial. No problem. That that's
2: not how it's supposed to be. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was one of my uh, staff in residency. He told me, he said, yeah, every day, make sure you talk to at least one clinician, even if it's whether it's an urgent case, an interesting case. Talk to at least one clinician every day." And for me, that's that's the rule that I really
0: try to stick by,
2: and uh, I wouldn't have it any any other way. So,
0: great words of wisdom, and. Dr. Cial, any last words of wisdom for when it comes to uh, x-rays lying, your scared mnemonic, how to interpret x-rays, any of what we've talked about?
1: I think I just leave you with two things. Make sure you see your patient before you see their x-ray. Then you know how to look at the x-ray better. And just because it's normal doesn't mean it's not serious. Uh, Go through a little mnemonic. Go think about these worrisome diagnoses like we always do. And then if after doing that, you don't think they have anything serious, you're probably right. Then you can treat them appropriately, but don't let a negative x-ray just rule the day.
0: All right. Thank you both for helping us better understand an approach to MSK injuries. I know the next time I see a patient with an MSK injury, that isn't quite making sense. I'll be sure to quickly run through that scared demonic. I'll force myself to think about pre-test and post-test probability. I'll think about how best to order the x-ray how to maybe think about those extra views that might help out and to integrate all these great pearls on reading x-rays. And hopefully I'll have some better outcomes for my patients and uh, I hope the listeners will have some better outcomes for their patients. So thank you so much, gentlemen.
1: A pleasure as always. Thanks, Yatin. Yeah, th- thank you, both of you. And
2: Anton, thanks for your work with the podcast because you are adding a lot of value for our physician community.